you know, Stalin and the Nazis were these welfare state types. Uh, One of us is a stand-up comic. Can you tell who it is, ladies and gentlemen? <laughs> Peckerwood Brick. Um. <laughs> but the problem. <laughs> Oh my god, that's like, I could use that to teach the whole arc. Do we have any kind of archaeological evidence, any kind of, any kind of other corroborating evidence? This is a Geek History of Time. Where we connect Mercury to the real world. My name is Ed Blaylock. I'm a world history and English teacher here in Northern California, who, as I mentioned in our last episode, is uh, I'm, I'm in the process of preparing to enter into the adventure that is home ownership. Um, and uh, very excited about that. We're spending a lot of time uh, talking about what we're going to do uh, with the property that we've purchased. Um, the, the house is an antique, which befits a history teacher such as myself. It was built in 1950 and, uh, it has not been updated since. <laughs> and, uh, so there are, uh, there, there are some, some things that have to be updated, uh, like the wiring, um, mostly because we don't want to spend the amount of money we've just spent and have it literally all go up in smoke. Um, and then there are other things that we really don't want to change just yet. Um, the kitchen, um, is, is the most notable example. It is original to the house and all of the cabinetry is metal. It has a stainless steel sink from 1950. It is the original sink in the house. And uh, the cabinets are stamped steel kitchen cabinets. Uh, painted, of course, but yeah. So it's it's very, very retro. Um, and so that's that's been a point of conversation with uh, both sets of our parents are <laughs> uh, just how retro is that? And oh my God, you're keeping that? Well, yeah, it's cool. <laughs> but so... That's what I have going on. Who are you and what are you up to? Well, I'm Damien Harmony. I am a Latin and drama teacher up here in Northern California. Uh, and uh, I, I really admire your commitment to, since we've been podcasting about uh, the bourgeoisie, to uh, including a bourgeois story at the beginning of each episode of this. So I've, I'm very much appreciating that. Do, do you do you remember which one of us is not the leftist? <laughs> well, I'm just saying, yeah. like, you know, I mean... Although, I gotta say, I do remember I had a moment a hundred years ago. This is actually before you and I met, uh, but in the very place where you and I met, my brother had moved into his apartment uh, up, mm -hmm. up, up a little mm -hmm. ways from me. Um, and I remember I went with him. I think it was his first apartment on his own. So I went with him and I... Uh, I, I was helping him with the inspection, like, oh, make sure you take note of this, make sure you take note of that. And yeah, then yeah. I I even asked, uh, you know, so I was I was looking around, I opened the cabinets, I'm like, these are the worst cabinets I've ever seen. And then immediately <laughs> after I was like, 
And since when do I care about cabinets? And I felt like a traitor to my people. Uh, so okay. So so the question is: in this in mm-hmm. this moment, who who are your people? Oh, it was within the context of that thought. Uh, poor folk. Like, why am I critiquing cabinets? They worked. You know, so it was okay. that kind of a thing. It was just kind of oh, like okay, that no. snobbish, like, I'd gotten used to. This would have been 2007, 2008. Okay. Um, I'd gotten used to having cabinets that were solid and not made of balsa. You know, like, okay. I, you, you remember the first apartment cabinets that you oh, ever had? Yeah, but, <laughs> shit. Okay, no, look, okay, right now so. we're recording, we're recording remotely. I'm in my apartment. Mm-hmm. Motherfucker, I can point you to the cabinets in my kitchen right fucking now. Right. The, one, one, of, one of the cabinet doors under our sink has literally failed so many times that we, we just, within the last two weeks, we took it off. Yeah. And so we're missing one. Yeah. And so, yeah, no, I know exactly what you're talking about. And what I would counter is, mm-hmm. this is, this is what I'm going to say. I think you are, to an extent, being perhaps a little overly harsh on yourself because here's the deal. Um, you're, you, were, you were affronted by the quality of those cabinets in your brother's interest. It was. As somebody who was renting from a landlord. Yeah, no, you're you're not wrong there. I just I remember thinking like I never would have given a shit about the quality of cabinets. Uh, when when producer George and I lived together, when we first moved in. That was my first apartment. <laughs> uh-huh. I didn't notice fuck all about cabinets. Well, no, I only noticed that his uh, then girlfriend's uh, eventual wife uh, nearly burnt them down with a grease fire. That's all I'd ever noticed about them, and even that okay. was short lived. So, okay. Much well, love to anyway. producer George <laughs> and his wife, uh, who has actually been featured on this show when we statted out producer George. So This is true. Yes. Anyway, uh, so speaking of bourgeois middle class stuff, you were going to get yes. into the British Empire? Is that what? Is that where we're headed? Yes. 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 Uh, specifically within the context of talking about Sherlock Holmes. And so I, I spent last episode talking about the the growth of the British Empire, the intersection of uh, the Industrial Revolution and the the supercharging of the expansion and power of the British Empire. And so I'm gonna I want to talk now about the state of the empire uh-huh. in the time period during which uh, Conan Doyle. Was was starting out writing Sherlock Holmes? Yeah, because we're talking. I mean, he's writing it not at its nascency. We're talking it's like it's damn near zenith. Oh, and it's at its apex. Yeah, I, mean, I would I would argue this is this is its apex. Uh, in in the eighteen eighties into eighteen nineties, we haven't had World War One yet. Right, <laughs> obvi. Um, and, and at this point, the British Navy literally rules the oceans. Mm -hmm. You, you couldn't, you, you couldn't fire a slingshot across a canal anywhere in the world without the British Navy knowing about it and having an opinion. Now, yeah. Now that I think about it, the, this was back when the, the entire globe was pink. Like, yes. Yeah. the, The sun never set. Yes. Yeah. Um, 
oh god i'm trying to remember now i can't remember the title of the movie there's a great film uh about uh, uh it's a it's a child's recollection of the blitz and and there's a little boy and somebody in the audience please tell us on twitter what movie it is i'm thinking of <laughs> little, little boys in his classroom at school and he's probably i don't know nine or ten mm-hmm. and his schoolmistress is up at the front of the room and she's the trunchbull figure you know uh-huh. screaming bellowing red-faced harridan of a woman at the front of the room shouting at all the kids pointing to a map and shouting at all the kids about how you know soldiers are out there right now defending all the pink you see on this map for the sake of your sorry butts you know and she's just you know they've they've misbehaved or done something and she's just she's furious at him and you know and she makes mention of the pink on the map and then moments later, the boys all all have to evacuate because there's a there's a bomb, there's oh, a raid, wow. and they, they evacuate. And moments later, you're you're watching from the boys' point of view in a in an air raid ditch, you know, on the edge of the property, and and one errant bomb falls from a German bomber, lands squarely on his classroom and detonates, <laughs> and all of the schoolboys cheer. <laughs> <laughs> And the main character looks to the heavens and says, "Thank you, Adolf." <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but you mentioned, you know, the world was pink. Yes. You know, everybody loved using the phrase "the sun never sets on the British Empire" because it literally fucking didn't. There was always some patch of British territory during this time period that mm-hmm. that had that had daylight. Mm-hmm. You know. It didn't matter what half of the globe you were on. If you were if you were right. in if you were in the, the Western Hemisphere, the Caribbean. If you were in the Eastern Hemisphere, it was literally like every fucking place. Else. Yeah, you know, and you it, know. it's a uh, it's an interesting thing with the, with the exception of India. Um, most of the Brit well, I'll I'll just confine it to uh, Africa. Most yeah. British holdings in Africa, because I used to teach kids imperialism when I taught yeah. world history. Um, and we would color in the maps easy day, but also yeah. give you a visual representation. Right. And what the kids always noticed, they're like, wow, it really looks like France won this one. And I said, yeah, but if you actually take a look and I would put like a transparency over their map of the rivers. Yep. And I'm like, yes, France had all that land in Western Africa as one giant block. There's no rivers there. There's hardly any people in this area over here. But notice the tiny little part that that Britain has, that's the Gambia. That is literally that river. So you could have all that stuff, but good luck getting your shit to market um, because we got the rivers. You know, that was Britain's. Now, that's in the west. In the the east, Britain had a lot more territory. Now, I'm trying to remember. Did the French control the Niger? Uh, Niger was... Portuguese? No, I believe that was French. Um, Okay. Yeah. Chad, Molly. Yeah, yeah, all that, uh, with the exception of okay. Libya. Um, but yeah, uh, Niger, because Nigeria was English. Yeah, oh, okay. Because they so, had the river. Right. Yeah. Yeah, all right. So, but anyway, okay. yes. Yeah, so, no, I remembered so, Nigeria was, but I'd forgotten about the others. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, no, you're right. And then, of course, the Belgians had the Congo, mm-hmm. which is its own horror story. Um, But so, so... 
during this time period, during during the 1880s, um, from from the time that uh, Conan Doyle starts writing Sherlock Holmes uh-huh. until World War Two. Well, really, World War One. Uh, Britain is at the height of its power. Uh-huh. Okay. And to just to give you an idea of, of where the places are that we're talking about, they're controlling now. Singapore was ruled as a substate of the Indian Protectorate. They colonized that in 1867. Colonized Malaysia. Okay. In 1867. Okay. South Africa. Right. Uh, was under their control uh, thanks to uh, the Second Boer War. Well, right. I'm sorry. The Second Boer War is later than I'm talking about, but they they had taken over the Dutch colony yes. in South Africa in 1802. Uh, the Boer the Second Boer War ended in 1902, which is during the time period yes. of what is referred to as the canon of Holmesian fiction. Mm-hmm. Cecil Rhodes during this time period, and as we mentioned briefly in, in the last episode, Cecil Rhodes was busy buying up property using some combination of private and government funds. Yeah. Um, uh, buying up territory property makes it sound so small scale. Uh, he, he was, he was working to, to build a right of way essentially to build a rail line mm-hmm. that would run from the Cape mm-hmm. in, in South Africa all the way to Cairo. Wow. Which, which I have to mention Cairo here. Because um, the really funny thing about it is, uh, technically, uh, Egypt was independent, but it was effectively controlled by the British. Right, because it's the uh, other uh, end of the Mediterranean, since they yeah. already had Gibraltar. They already had Gibraltar, so now they had to close off the other end of the Mediterranean, yeah. which is the Suez Canal. Right, because then they could then leverage uh, Russia and the Ottoman Empire as they saw fit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, stranglehold on all of it. Yeah, I mean, this is where you get the the charge of the light brigade type shit. Yeah, yeah, yep. And so um, Australia and New Zealand mm-hmm. had been settled back in the 1780s. Uh, first colony in Australia, first British colony, the penal colony in New South Wales in 1788, Botany mm-hmm. Bay, mm-hmm. and then New Zealand had officially become a British colony with the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi in 1840, which was an agreement Mm -hmm. between a coalition of Maori tribes and the British government because there was the, the, the Maori were concerned about some other power. And and so they signed on with the British essentially. So New Zealand became a British colony. Canada, had been British territory since the end of the Seven Years' War. Mm-hmm. All all of the European powers in the 1880s, 1890s, all the European powers controlled empires. The Germans had overseas colonies. The French were still holding on to some. The Spanish still had, you know, interests. Uh, and all of them, by this time, all of them were scrambling over China. Mm-hmm. But Britain's empire was the largest and arguably the wealthiest. Oh, yeah, yeah. And and the most, uh, yeah, you said largest. I was going to say most vast, which yeah. I, I think there's, there can be a case made that vastness outweighs largeness just because not only did they 
have the most territory. But then the influence that spreads beyond that ter- territory speaks to the vastness of it. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah. So, like, they, yeah, there's, yeah, they, they not only had, <laughs> you know, it's kind of like um, Texas is not only one of the largest states, but also because of that, it influences textbooks. Yes. It's, yeah, it's, it's reach, yeah. or what is it? It's reach extends its grasp or something. It's, exceeds, exceeds its, its grasp. Yeah. 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 So. Yeah, yeah, no, the 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 physical size is less important than the leverage and the symbolic or political mm-hmm. size. That is very real physical size. Yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah, there there is a relationship between the two of them. Mhm. Yeah, and and one is one they 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 kind of fuel each other. Mhm. Cuz as as you gain more territory, you have more leverage, which allows you to gain more territory, which allows you to gain more leverage. Right. So it's it's this this self self uh, self enlarging cycle. Yeah, it's it's what you used to refer to a gun as as a, a force multiplier. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. and so um, at any given time during during this time period now, this also means that there are British soldiers. Mm-hmm stationed literally all over the world at any given time british soldiers were shooting at somebody somewhere Mm -hmm. either to defend colonial subjects or to keep them in line um i I took a quick look on wikipedia in researching this and i found that from the time of conan doyle's birth Mm -hmm. because we're talking about you know pattern on the wallpaper right 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 from Conan Doyle's birth to the publication of A Study in Scarlet, there were no fewer than 17 official wars oh my God. fought by the British Empire to defend imperial interests. Now, back then, having an official war was a, it was a good thing. Like, it was, it was not something yeah. to be avoided as the Americans had pretended to. Yeah. Like, you don't have yeah. that the pretense of, con- of conscience there. It's... Oh yeah. no, we're we need to have this war too. But seventeen, we are, we are we are we are vigorous and we are going to defend our interests and we are going to do it the way men do things. Right. Um. Wow. And so that's that's full size that's that's full size wars that's big mm-hmm. enough to qualify for their own Wikipedia articles. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't even count skirmishes, punitive, and police actions. The East India Company marching in and going, all right, so you're all working for us now. None of that shit counts. That's just full-size wars. Mm. Okay. Um, and and so the United Kingdom – so so that means – and remember from our last episode uh-huh. that there had been British troops stationed in West Africa since the 1670s. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And the the soldiers who are going out to do this fighting mm-hmm. are going out and they're they're being exposed to the cultures that they are planted within. Okay. When mm-hmm. when when you get sent to a garrison someplace in Bombay. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. You're you're now 
you're being exposed to that culture. You're hearing those sounds, seeing those sights. You you get exposed to that culture, and there is this whole class of striving middle class, ambitious striving middle class young men leaving the United Kingdom to become military administrators within right. the empire. Uh, in a later time period, we have George Orwell, mm-hmm. who served as an imperial administrator in someplace in Southeast Asia. I don't think it was India. I thought it was because there was. I could be remembering wrong. I, I know we talked about you know the the, the the wonderfully eloquent anti-imperialist story, shooting the elephant, right? Which yeah, no, it might have been India. It might have been yeah. Bengal. It might have been modern-day yeah. Bangladesh. Yeah, but because I remember. I, yeah, anyway, I could be misremembering. Shout at us on Twitter sure. if, if I'm remembering wrong, because now I'm genuinely curious, but I don't want to interrupt the flow to look it up. But so there's there's this whole class of middle class mm-hmm. bourgeois young men going out to to make a name for themselves mm-hmm. out on the on the frontier of the empire, mm-hmm. and so the the. Uh, the 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 navigators that are leaving the country to go build railways, the the administrators that are leaving to oversee these projects, these are Englishmen. These are also lots and lots and lots of Scotsmen. Yes, which takes us back to the importance of the Acts of Union in 1707 and 1706. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and Welshmen and you know, and Irishmen mm-hmm. who are now the interesting thing is, you know, the uh, during this time period, mm-hmm. the now this time Scots, period being when 18th, 19th century. Okay, just making because there's a bit of bouncing going on there, but yeah, yeah there, there is yeah. there is some bouncing going on, but but during during the height of the British Empire, mm-hmm. what's interesting is if a character in a story is a Scot. Mm-hmm. It gets noted that he's a Scot. Oh, okay. He's not. He's not an Englishman, but he's a, he's a Scot. Sure. Frequently, you know, the mention of the accent or whatever gets mentioned, but that's kind of the extent of it. Now, if somebody is an Irishman, mm-hmm. in in most of the British publications from the time, the stereotypes that you see associated with Irishmen are he's either a ranker in the army. Mm-hmm. With you know uh, a certain kind of character attached to that set of assumptions, there's kind of stock Irish kind of personalities that are attached, or he's a villain, and he might be mm, okay. a kind of he might be a kind of anglicized right villain, you know, middle class, upper class kind of kind of villain, or he might just be a thug, right? But but the Irish had this weird position and, and to a lesser extent, the Scots, mm-hmm. the empire was British, but it was, it was self-consciously very English. If that makes sense. Yeah. Well, it's, it's yes, we're all British, but each person still carries their distinct culture with them. Yeah. As we invade this place with Brown people where yeah, they're all the, the same, but yeah, we're all different. English, and the English are very clearly the senior partners. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way. Because and then I was thinking because I was also thinking in terms of like having a Londoner 
versus, you know, having somebody who's from Sussex. Uh, you know, having someone who's an East Ender versus somebody who's from Whitehall. Like, yeah, you talk about like creating striations and separations within a a an in group. Um, you know, that's a very I, I would say that's a very British thing to do, but I, I do think that that um, I think that might be painting with too broad a brush. I think there's a lot of people that do that. It just happened to be that they were the ones in power. Um, yeah. and wrote a lot about it and were yeah, self-indulgent think, in that. I think, I think you're very much on the, on the, on the hitting the nail on the head with it that way. Yeah. Um, I think that's something we all tend to do. Like, mm-hmm. you know, everybody within my culture is an individual, right? but like, I don't know that culture. And so they're all, you know, they're, they're, they're all a group. Well, you just look you at know. Forrest Gump talking about Vietnam. You know, in Vietnam, all these things happen, blah, blah, blah. But then when he's talking about the different people, you know, Cleveland was from Washington. uh, Washington was from Texas. I don't remember where Tex was from. Like, he's legit, like, telling you where each person in his Mm -hmm. group was from. They're all the Americans. And, you know, he didn't speak hardly at all about the Vietnamese people in his narrative of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a pretty common thing. Yeah, that's that's how as as troop animals, that's that's kind of how we psychologize. Yes. So um, and so as as part of talking about the mentality of empire, Mm -hmm. I want to take a moment to to segue from talking about Conan Doyle and Holmes to talking about a contemporary of Conan Doyle's uh, who was as I found out in doing my research, the youngest individual ever to win the Nobel prize for literature. Oh, wow. And that is Rudyard Kipling. Oh, wow. Okay. So Kipling writes with remarkable empathy and sensitivity Mm -hmm. for this, this class of people who are who have this this kind of divided identity they thought of themselves anglo indian mm-hmm. and that was that was he himself uh kipling is a product of the british empire in that he was born in 1865 6 years after doyle mm-hmm. he was born in bombay to english parents do you say 60 years or 16 years 6 6, six. years okay yeah. He was born in 65, mm-hmm, six mm-hmm. years after Conan Doyle. Right. And so he he wrote about his experiences growing up that he had uh, a Portuguese nanny. Okay. And an Indian kind of manservant who was partially responsible for looking after him. Mm-hmm. And in the afternoons, he would hear, you know, fairy tales and stories from his nanny and from this, from this manservant. And then they would send him in to him and his, his sister into his parents and they would tell them, now remember, speak English when you talk to mommy and daddy. Oh, okay. And so, so he, he and, and all of these, all of these officers of empire mm-hmm. had this very remarkable sense of identity of being English or being, or being British more to the point being British, Mm -hmm. 
but also inevitably there was some level of going native for them. I I would say, given that he wrote White Man's Burden and The Jungle Book, um, yes, there yeah, I I could definitely see that, but also y- your inherent whiteness. Uh, will still it w- will allow you to take the best parts of going native and leave behind the savage parts. Oh yeah, his, no, I'm not, I'm not. Yeah, no, I'm I'm not. I'm not about to uh, whitewash his yeah. his imperialism because I'm I'm getting around to to I'm getting around to the white man's burden. Yeah. That's, okay. And and is, I didn't mean that, to Im- imply that you yeah. you were trying to whitewash that, but like yeah. the idea of going native, I want to I want to make sure that we we tread carefully there because for him it was always a dip in dip out kind of thing. You take the best parts. It, I mean, it was a colonizer mentality yeah. of oh, of yeah. going no, native. Totally was. Yeah. Yeah. So so there's there's this whole there's this whole class of people who have this this same kind of thing like you're saying they Mm -hmm. they 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 have this mobility this cultural yep flexibility privilege combination something trying to think of a good word to use privilege Mm -hmm. is definitely part of it but it's it's a little bit narrower band that i'm looking for Mm -hmm. uh you know kipling for example spent his formative years his first few years uh in india and then got sent back to england Mm mm-hmm for his school education and in his in his case he wound up uh boarding with a family who were horribly abusive and and it was a it was a nightmare for him it was a terrible experience uh for the several years he was living with these folks so a typical british boy experience (laughs) yeah seems (laughs) to be yeah seems to be uh and and what was it that chris hitchens said who by the way What's the opposite of rehabbing someone? Um, he needs that. Uh, but because um, he was just a very eloquent hawk. Uh, yeah. But uh, he said that uh, boarding school could be summed up with the three B's. It was um, beatings. Uh, maybe it was beatings, bullying, and buggery. That sounds about right. And yeah. You know what's funny is he was he was building on or or the rum sodomy uh, and the evolving, lash. Yeah, rum sodomy yeah. and the lash about the about the British Navy, <laughs> right? Which is also an arm of empire. You know? Yes. But so so what's interesting is the whole reason that Kipling got sent back to mm-hmm. England, specifically England, but mm-hmm. but back to the home island, was to make sure that he was that he that he got a sufficiently English character right in his education. Yeah. We can't have him growing you know, up Bengalese. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, or in his case, uh, I don't know what, what the term would be, but you know, Bombayan. Yeah. Well, Bengalese uh, is definitely not the term I was, I was lampooning yeah. the British there. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. Bangladeshi. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and so as, as, so there's this, there's this backing and forthing within for individuals within the empire and for those individuals within the empire, then that turns into Mm -hmm. this experience where the, the whole character of the United Kingdom Mm -hmm. itself Mm -hmm. becomes affected because it becomes an Imperial Island. There are raw materials of all kinds pouring into its ports from literally all over the world. Right. 
uh, you know, spices and silks and, and raw materials, you know, uh, diamonds, gold, silver, mm-hmm. um, you know, common copper, cotton, c- uh, cotton from Egypt, Huge. uh, you know, and, well, and, and India, you know, I was going to say, yeah. yeah, you know, that's, that's and, why they were like, nah, fuck you South. We're good. Like yeah, no, we're during okay, civil war. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's also worth noting, sorry, I didn't mm-hmm. get into this in the last episode, but um, the abolition of slavery mm-hmm. by the United Kingdom in 1807 was largely achievable because in most of the most important sectors of the of the imperial economy, they no longer depended on slave labor. Right. Because they had factories to do the work. And it was the next phase of, I mean, that's, oh, okay. I, I just need to stop and highlight. You Say that again yeah. without me talking over it. Why did they okay. not have slavery anymore? Because they'd moved to factory production, which didn't require slave labor for economic growth. There you go. I just, I just want to make sure that that point is made in <laughs> total abject silence so everybody can be horrified from that. Um... Also, uh, it turns out your former slaves and their children, if you restrict where they can buy shit, you now have a captive market. So you don't need to go through the rigmarole of extracting their labor and the value of it. You can just charge them. Like you just take their money. Yeah. You have cut out the middleman entirely when you do that. Like, well, okay. So, so here's the deal for everybody who, you know, didn't fall asleep during eighth grade U S history, by the way, congratulations. Um, I had a hard time staying awake during eighth grade U.S. history and <laughs> history is my favorite subject in the fucking world. I want to tell you a story about my experience in that, but I don't want to derail us too much. So <laughs> maybe at the end of this, you can ask me okay. about it. Okay. Yeah. So, cause now schmuck bait, I want to know, but for those of you who paid attention in eighth grade U.S. history, um, you'll remember the term mercantilism, mm-hmm. which is the selling of pubic web, web, wigs in uh new uh turkish bathrooms mercantiles mercant okay, yeah mercant i was like wait a minute how does okay right yeah um good day sir <laughs> fuck you <laughs> now i have that stuck in my head <laughs> which because tiles are square and a, a merkin is usually yeah. triangular so yeah. yeah oh is this the throw it's... rug no no it's this this fall fashion it's... nice <laughs> nice God damn it. So you could play Gotye. Uh is it Gotye? Gotya? Gotya? The the you know, now you're just somebody that I used to oh, know. Somebody that I used to know. Yeah. yeah. You could just have that playing in the background. You, you didn't have to cut me off. So <laughs> oh, he's leaning back. He's pinching his head. Oh. Oh, that's awful. <laughs> oh, that's awful. And it feels um, so rough. Anyway. Yeah. So. 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 See, to, if, if you'd had me as an eighth grade teacher, here. you would not have fallen yeah. asleep because you would have been like, what's yeah, this no. asshole going to say what, next? What, what's, what the fuck? Yeah. yeah. So. So. But the mercantilism, the idea that, no, no, you're our colony. You're going to buy shit from us. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's it, man. Mm-hmm. Um, that was. That was. <laughs> the UK's economic policy for basically forever and and you know is spoken of in in 
you know, the the curriculum for eighth grade U.S. history as being this terrible, oppressive, awful thing. Right. You know, and then if the curriculum was honest, when you get to high school, you'd learn about the Philippines. Yeah. As a protectorate, etc., etc. You know, et yeah, and 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 Puerto Rico, mm-hmm. maybe. Mm-hmm. Also, let's talk about the history of Hawaii, shall we? Yeah. Only, only let's be sure to do it. You know, late in the day, so you don't go through the rest of the school day fucking depressed. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, and then and then the British got to do this really fun thing where they did the head tax. So in addition to you have to buy from us, they taxed you for having a head. And so you had well, to pay that I mean, as that's, well. That's easy. That's well, I mean, that, that would lead to unrest because like, I mean, if nobody's getting a blowjob. Ah, good call. That's going to cause all kinds of frustration. Yeah. But, uh, but um, we'll just leave the jokes on my side of the aisle here. I really oh, fuck you. <laughs> but... Uh, but so so but, to the to the couple of to the couple of parents in our audience who who have their their kids listening to the show I apologize for that one because I yep. I felt like I had to make that joke and then I regretted it immediately. Mm-hmm. So I did too. I'm, I regretted I'm, I'm, I'm you sorry. making that joke. Fuck again, <laughs> fuck you. See, I have I, standards I, that I uphold. I don't know what you're doing. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so, Mercantile. Fuck that you. was over people's heads. <laughs> We've anyway. all learned. Anyway, yeah, but no, right, they fine. did the they did the head tax when you yeah. were a uh, when when not only did you have to buy from the company store, but also we're going to tax you for the the they used to do a hut tax, and then they found that like oh this has impoverished so many people that they don't even have huts. Let's do a head tax. Yeah. And so they did that, and that was like you know in addition to you have to buy from the company store, now also you owe us taxes, which. Put you into debt peonage, um, in in a oh, yeah, well, really you yeah. know, and essentially you effectively got slave labor out of these people, but now you got them coming and going as far as their money goes. That's true. You just cogified them. Oh yeah. So well yeah. Anyway, so so we have we have this this whole new stratum of of middle class being created that has this attachment to Mm -hmm. the empire yes and whether you are a company clerk working for a manufacturer in portsmouth Mm -hmm. or you are a dock worker in liverpool Right. Or or you are a mill worker anywhere in Britain mm-hmm. or, or a port worker anywhere anywhere in the United Kingdom. Yeah. No you matter know. your job, you're servicing the empire and yeah, no, it's servicing it's providing your job. Yeah. Yeah. And so with within the UK itself, the standard of living of mm-hmm. average workers had improved dramatically over the course of the eighteen hundreds. I believe it. Yeah. Now now, here's an important caveat. Uh, when when you start at rock bottom, yeah. it's really easy to improve. Um, conditions had changed so dramatically from 1844 until 1892 
that Friedrich Engels had to preface the 1892 edition of The Condition of the Working Class in England with a statement that most of the horrors he had described in 1844 had been had had gone away. Mm -hmm. Because when he first wrote the book in 1844, uh, mill workers, people who had left the countryside to go to work in the cities, Mm -hmm. in these factory jobs, uh, were living in shanty towns and shacks. And as you mentioned, uh, London hadn't figured out how to build a sewer yet. Right. You know, and then by the end of the century, by 1892, Mm -hmm. these things had been rectified. And so within living memory, the standard of living for basically everybody in the United Kingdom Mm -hmm. had dramatically improved. And so... Uh, so by, by 1892 or by the 1880s, cause that's when we're now talking about, you know, Sherlock Holmes having his Genesis by the 1880s, even for the lowest of the middle class or the highest of the lower classes, mm-hmm. their lot was demonstrably better thanks to progress than it had been for their parents. Right. And they saw their own position in the world. If mm-hmm. you were a mill worker in England mm-hmm. or Scotland, mm-hmm. you saw your own position in the world as far, far better than the position of any of the non-white subjects of the empire out on, on the frontier of the empire in India, anywhere in Africa, uh, you know, elsewhere in the world, Southeast Asia, Native Americans in Canada. Right. And I'll go you one better uh, from there. Not only did you see it as better, you saw it as as demonstrably more mobile upwardly because Mm. all of the other people who lived in those places were kind of part of the scenery. Okay. You know, uh, they were part of your experience there. They were not having their own lives in your mind as a British subject. Oh, no. Yeah. So you were a subject of the crown. They were objects of the crown. Furniture. Yeah. They were part. I mean, there was the Ottoman Empire, um, but they were. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Thanks. But they were they were a part of the scenery where you went and grew up to be a man. They were part of your story. You were not a background to their story. And I think that that mobility that you would see for yourself, you wouldn't see for them specifically because uh, you, as a British subject, would um, yeah, you were the you were the protagonist of your story ultimately. Mm -hmm. So yeah, well, and and the thing is. The, the 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 empire for the British during this time period provided the same psychological mm-hmm. I don't know if comfort is the right word or release that the frontier had provided yes for Americans yeah safety valve for yeah. a growing urban population and growing civil unrest. Here, here's a place where we can ship you off to. And by the way, now you're satisfying our needs economically. Um, you know, th- well, yeah. th- this is not. I mean, that's that's yeah. literally Australia. Yeah, I was going to say this is Rome. Like we're gonna, 
you know, Rome oh, is yes. like, oh shit, all these soldiers are back in Rome and, and we can't control these gangs. Hey, you get more land if you go out to the frontier and all you got to do is defend it. And it's like, oh yeah. shit. Yeah. I'm, I'm there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, and, and kind of what I'm, what I'm talking about more than that is even if you never left Portsmouth as a British citizen, there was always the understanding mm-hmm. that there was this frontier out there. Yeah. It was an emotional yeah. and mental escape valve as well. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. kind of what I'm getting at is, is the mentality of it was that. And the other thing is that this is a time period of dramatic and rapid technological advancement and change. Mm-hmm. And so a huge portion of that improved quality of life that we that we're talking about for for people in the UK mm-hmm. is connected to rail lines, is connected to uh, science and modernity, and we're going to build a sewer, and we're going to make you know uh, bleeding heart liberals, you know, creating regulations for housing construction and sanitation and public health. Mm-hmm. And and all of that, there was there was this urge toward modernity. Yeah, and that it was progress. Yes, yes, yes that it was that it totally was progress. Yeah, and the empire mm-hmm. to Britons was a civilizing and modernizing force. Mm-hmm. It brought the lights of Western democracy, modern science and medicine, and modern economic prosperity. Mm-hmm. To benighted primitive peoples who otherwise would have been living in superstition, squalor, and barbarity without the intervention of the strapping young men who bore the white man's burden. I was going to say, you really cribbed cri- Kipling there. Well, but I yeah. did. Yeah. And, and actually, I, I kind of I kind of want to, so I, I have I have a link here to the poem. And, and just to, to, to drive the nail home about what the British view of their empire was mm-hmm. I with with your indulgence I'm gonna read it because as as an artifact of this I think it's very important the whole thing or selections well, selections okay cool yeah because the the first couple of stanzas really hit it hard and then there's one yeah. toward toward the end that you're just like holy shit <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah. All right. Now, uh, now I'd point yeah. out the yeah. white man's burden was published in. Well, actually, I don't want to steal your thunder. Did you want to talk about the history of well, that poem? Oh yeah. Well, okay. it's, it was it was written in 1899. Mm-hmm. So it's so the poem itself postdates Holmes, mm-hmm. but it gets to the heart of of what I'm going to try to argue about Holmes, mm-hmm. and it's about the Philippine American War. Yes. And it was literally an exhortation. Yeah. Two Americans to engage in empire. Yes. Um, I mean, it's literally in the title. Yes. Or or it's in the first line, actually. You know, take up the... Yeah. Yes. So here we go. So, yeah. First stanza. Take up the white man's burden. Send forth the best ye breed. Go bind your sons to exile to serve your captive's need. To wait in heavy harness on fluttered folk and wild, your new-caught sullen peoples, half-devil and half-child. Take up the white man's burden in patience to abide, 
to veil the threat of terror and check the show of pride by open speech and simple and hundred times made plain to seek another's profit and work another's gain. And now we're going to go down and just skip a few things. So, uh, take up the white man's burden have done with childish days yeah. the lightly proffered laurel the easy ungrudged praise comes now to search your manhood through all the thankless years cold edged with dear bought wisdom the judgment of your peers yeah so the the level <laughs> the 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 level of of blatant Latent racism, yeah, in this is is staggering to the modern ear. Yeah, when it's it's one of those like when when you're teaching world history, you can't help but have the kids read this yeah. as like um, just in case y'all didn't get it yet. <laughs> it. Yeah, it's it's, it's like about white supremacy. It's, yeah, yeah, it's it's like teaching the Civil War and making sure you use the cornerstone address. Yeah, exactly. like, yeah it's like in oh. case you missed the point entirely. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Or you know, like you know, like talking about John Brown at all. You know, it's just yeah, like, yeah. Hmm, like, hmm, this is what it's about. This this the, this is the thing. Yeah, yeah. I thought you were um, going to do the one about the the Egyptian night because to me that shows the. What a favor you're doing to these Browns. Oh, um, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 No, that's, yeah. But, but I think just the first stanza really is, is oh, enough. Boy. Just yeah. like, holy shit, half devil and half child. Yeah. Holy shit, man. <laughs> like, yeah. Wow. It's, uh, yeah. It's, it's, well, Damn. yeah. Yeah. It's a good thing you he know. got the, the Nobel Prize. I mean, at least you know Nobel. Those people learned from their mistakes and didn't give the peace prize, you know, to somebody who would, yeah. you know use more drone strikes than anybody else, or to someone else yeah. who would be leading a civil war presently. Like, at least they learned from their mistakes uh, when yeah. giving Nobel prizes for things. So. About that. Oh. Oh. That's don't worry. It's not. It's <laughs> not germane to what we're talking about right now. Oh. Um. But so. So the thing is that that is the the sharp Bessemer steel hardened mm-hmm. uh, edge of of the patriarchalism mm-hmm. uh, uh, involved in in Britain's attitude toward their empire. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, now I got to get back to talking about Holmes and Watson. Yes, and and the thing that really separates Holmes from the earlier characters that I talked about from Auguste Dupin and Lecoq, the earlier prototypes of the, of the detective is Holmes very explicitly uses science and modern chemistry, modern scientific understandings Mm -hmm. in order to solve many, many of the things, many of his mysteries. Um, he looks at things like powder burns, blood toxicology. Mm-hmm. He analyzes typewriter faces. Like he has note cards comparing different models of typewriter in order to identify forgeries. Mm, okay. 
he uses fingerprints uh, and ballistic marks on bullets. Mm-hmm. And so all of these things were cutting edge science at the time. Yes. Uh, almost, almost, but not quite science fiction. And like, like Doyle took ideas that were being discussed in scientific circles and in a few places like he he extrapolated okay well if they know this then somebody could potentially figure this out right and so holmes 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 winds up doing some kind of csi shit in the sense that well you know okay that's based on a theory of something that's right but the technology isn't quite there yet holmes is to forensics what like tv procedurals are to the internet Yes. You know how they like they'll start yeah. hacking together and they're both typing on one half of the keyboard at the same time. Yeah. And they're just gibberishing the shit out of it. They're like, "No, you need an ASCII animation." "Oh, you're absolutely right, but we should use the World War 4 protocol." "You're completely right." "Yes, and their BBSs won't work cuz they're on Fidonet." "Yes." And it's like, "This is 2017. What the fuck are you talking about 1990s tech for?" Like, and why yeah. are you why are you pounding on the, you know, uh JKL semicolon the keyboard. and he's yeah. pounding on asdf side of the, like yeah nobody's that well coordinated like i didn't i didn't realize that you watched ncis los angeles i didn't uh <laughs> but i've i've had i've had occasion to be at people's houses when they have have yeah <laughs> i can i can hear that in those characters voices like, yeah holy yeah. shit it's like yeah yeah you know and yeah. it's you know what it is it's that girl from jurassic park Oh yeah, a Unix yeah. system. I know this, and it's like, well, then why is it all visual? But and, and I understand and, that yes. we have recently found yeah. that she's not that far off the mark. But but still, it's I, I'm a hacker. You know, it's yeah. it's that kind of yeah yeah yeah. So so in in that same way, for mm-hmm. us nowadays, those kind of tropes are a clue to us, the audience, that we're dealing with somebody who is. You know, cutting edge knows their way around all these technological things. Holmes, similarly, right, was this figure of modernity, mm-hmm. and a big part of the identity of the British Empire mm-hmm. was we we are the most advanced civilization currently in on Earth. Like we oh, we yeah. are we are we are at the forefront of industry we are at the forefront of scientific understanding of the world yes this is this is this is the tail end of the time period of the gentleman uh paleontologist Mm -hmm. uh you know uh you know british gentlemen with nothing better to do with their time were were you know were were were, you know some of the earliest you know systematic uh scientists right because they they had the they had the time and the money to, to spend on doing that stuff, mm-hmm. you know, and and that was a very kind of upper crust kind of thing. But then that that gradually got somewhat democratized, mm-hmm. you know, and so. But there was there was this again. The empire is a modernizing force. We as the United Kingdom are on the cutting edge of all of these things. Now, I would also say that it's not just a modernizing force, but it's a dominating force. It is a tool by which the British Empire dominates. I'm going to go back to the Battle of Omdurman, which was 1898. Um, And, I mean, the to hear 
Winston Churchill speak of it. It's clear it's the machine gun, which I think back then was a Gatling gun, basically. You you would know better than I. Um, but uh, essentially, the ability 1890s. to throw... Yeah, 1898. Um, the, the ability to throw a shit ton of bullets down range as the Mahdist armies are coming against you enabled you to kill in such incredible numbers and have very few of your men touched that's science baby that's there's oh, a yeah. modernity to that that enables you to dominate and therefore there's this belief in the superiority of western science over mm-hmm. quaint political and religious ideologies of the natives and and so it's this 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 secularization and this um blessed love of modernity as a dominating force because i mean oh, you yeah. had you had omdurman which i mean if you look at the body counts of omdurman it's i i want to say it's in the five figures for the Mahdist mm-hmm. army and it's under 400 for or maybe under 600 for the british yeah well what i'm going to point yeah. out mm-hmm. is by the time of omdurman uh, it was not a Gatling gun. Okay. It it would have been some variation on the Maxim gun, which was a okay. recoil-operated yeah. machine gun. The, the Maxim was invented in 1884. Mm-hmm. I also want to point out that in 1887, mm-hmm. Henry Morton Stanley, ah, that's right, who was yes. an American, went he up wasn't. the Congo River. <laughs> oh, well, no, he was, but he pretended to be British. That's what it was. Well, his his background is really weird. He's, he's referred to as an American journalist, but I believe he did have a, a significant portion of his childhood was in the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a weird, weird kind of situation. And he was operating uh, in the interests of the British public. Oh, you're right. He in was looking, in looking for Livingston. He was born he was, in Wales. You're right. Yes. But yes. he lived most of his... I, I want to say most of his life States. was like in Jersey or somewhere, but yeah. 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 So, so, but, but there was the, the couplet, mm-hmm. uh, whatever happens, we have got the Maxim gun and they have not. Yes. Uh, from, from the same time period. And so, yes, no, we have, you know, the advanced tools of, of industrializing lethal force because mm-hmm. it's literally a machine gun. Yes. You know, and but also modern drilling techniques, modern uh, as modern an army technique as you can have back then for your infantrymen, modern formations centered around these new guns. So the box formation where you can shoot at an army that's surrounding you, um, well, you know, stuff like that. Like you don't yeah. just have these uh, antiquated ne- ne- Napoleonic lines of pikemen coming towards you, but now they have rifles. Okay, well, which would have so lost out against mounted mockdists. I got I got to quibble slightly. Okay, uh, about about the details of the argument you made. Uh, you're you're not totally wrong, but mm-hmm. but some of the details in your argument, I I can't I I it's going to annoy me if I don't if I don't <laughs> address them. So the the square formation that you're talking about, mm-hmm. uh, line and square and column, were uh, during the Napoleonic era. Uh, they were they were like you would form square against cavalry because that allowed you to get all your guns pointing in every direction mm-hmm. and consolidated your your uh, forces 
whereas if you're in line, it's a lot easier for cavalry to break the line. Right. As opposed to if you're in square, you know, if one of them breaks through, you've got them surrounded and you can, you know, cut them apart. Right. You know, and then there's times to use line and there's times to use column. By the time of the modest uprising and, and Omdurman, um, there was an understanding, there was a nascent understanding that the tactics of the Napoleonic era no longer worked. Mm-hmm. Like everybody had been observing the American Civil War in the 1860s. Right. And the American Civil War proved, uh, and and lo- there's a there's a wonderful passage in the Killer Angels, where Michael Shara does a really good job of kind of info dumping without feeling like he's in- info dumping mm-hmm. about how it was that Napoleonic tactics no longer worked effectively when you had every man carrying a rifled musket. Mm-hmm. Because the ability of an individual soldier, right, to kill a target at a much long, to effectively kill a target at a much longer range, mm-hmm. was a big deal. Now the thing was, by the time of the modest uprising, the lessons of the American Civil War had been learned, mm-hmm. and so formations were changing. What's interesting is, even at Omdurman the British army was fighting the American civil war. Hmm. Tactically speaking. Okay. While using machine guns. Oh, okay. Against an enemy that was trying to fight the siege of Accra during the first crusade. Right. If that makes sense. And actually, Accra yeah, was yeah. first crusade. It was a later crusade, but you get what I'm saying? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, the, the modests <laughs> were, 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 light years behind you know they, they were there were multiple eras of military technology behind mm-hmm. the british which again even though the british were doing that thing that everybody does which is they fought the last war mm-hmm. that still put them centuries ahead of the modest okay yeah yeah and so and so yeah to to churchill who was himself an unapologetic imperialist mm-hmm. Um, this was just an example of the innate superiority of British civilization, ingenuity, manhood. I mean, you name it. Yeah, all the things. You know. Um, sorry, excuse me. Sure. Um, that one snuck up on me. Um, and so, so, so this this idea of modernity and the dominance of modernity and scientific progress. What this all ties into is Holmes is a multidisciplinary genius. Mm-hmm. He's a very good shot with a pistol. It could be argued that Watson is a better one, but but Holmes is a crack shot with a pistol. Mm-hmm. Holmes is a knows how to use a rifle, although he rarely does. Mm-hmm. He's a champion single stick fencer. He's a fencer. He knows how to knows his way around a sword. He knows jujitsu. He is this combination of this scientist, wizard, man of action, action hero character. Mm-hmm. He he embodies all of these things. And my argument is that he's not because you've you've already you've kind of 
at the end of the last episode, you were saying that he is this hero that the British Empire, that the middle class of the British Empire can look to as the person who's going to save them. Mm-hmm. I am going to argue he is the avatar of the Empire itself. Oh. Well, shit, that's a good place to end this one, then. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, 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 but I want to, I want to kind of, you know, filigree sure. that a little bit. So he, he is, he is, he is the empire. He mm-hmm. is, he is modernity. He mm-hmm. is the, the enlightening force. He gets called in mm-hmm. when Scotland Yard, who to extend the analogy, maybe to its breaking point, represents the other powers of Europe. Oh, okay. You know, when, when, when they don't know a solution to a problem and they can't figure out what's going on, he shows up and through a combination of just his innate brilliance and, you know, hard work and the application of modern scientific principles, he finds the answer. Watson Mm -hmm. is the insert character for the audience Right. And and Watson represents the people of the empire. Watson notably is a veteran of the second Afghan war. Mm-hmm. The study in Scarlet is set several years before it was actually written. And so the second Afghan war had ended, I want to say in 81, 1881, I'd have to look it up. But Watson is a man of action mm-hmm. who has a slot wounds suffered in the field but he is otherwise fit and i quote brown as a nut from his time in the sun (laughs) at the start of a study in scarlet Mm -hmm. he is a foot soldier of the empire literally he was an army doctor in afghanistan so he is what we all could be and holmes is what we all wish we were we being british citizens yeah yeah Middle-class British citizens. Yeah. Consider. And so when, when I, when I elaborate on this, mm-hmm. what's interesting is in the original stories, Holmes is this, nobody ever, nobody questions his genius. There are sometimes when Lestrade and the other, the other inspectors look at him and go, well, I, I think you're kind of reaching there, mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Holmes. But then at the end, they all they inevitably wind up fawning over. Well, you know, I couldn't couldn't crack this without your help, et cetera, et cetera. Right. <clears throat> and they may wind up going and stealing the credit. But there's this there's this constant affirmation of his genius and his brilliance. And so, when when I elaborate on this mm-hmm. in episodes to come, <clears throat> what's interesting is. Holmes evolves as our view of empire evolves. Okay. And the two most notable examples are in the two major uh, recent television adaptations of the show. There is a very remarkable difference in tone and the character of Holmes Mm -hmm. between Sherlock and made by the BBC and elementary made in the United States. Okay. And so that's where I'm going to drop this right now. Cool. 
That's a um, good place. Yeah. That is that is that is my thesis. So with with that being put out there, what do you think? What 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 do you take away? I I think that you know the the episode where I talked about how Steve Rogers was the avatar of the New Deal. Yeah. I think thematically this is this is very much that. Oh yeah. It just, you know, changed the person's name. You know, X is the avatar of Y. Yeah. Um and it's, you know, here are all of its components. So I'm very excited to hear all the ways in which he is and I think that you've done a really good job with the history um leading up to it uh of already kind of setting the groundwork for that. So I'm I'm excited to kind of enjoy the ride there. So that's cool. that's where I'm at with that. Yeah. All right. So um, not going to do any book recommendations this week. This time I would like to hear from you. If someone were to watch a Sherlock Holmes uh, visual medium, what would be the first one you would tell them to watch? Not the best one, but the one that really, really sets the tone so that they'll understand and appreciate the other ones. Is it Veronica Mars? I feel like it's Veronica Mars. No. No, no Veronica Mars is not Holmes. Oh, okay. No. No. Uh that that would be if if somebody wanted wanted, you know, to 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 dip their toes in noir mm-hmm. to get an understanding for that genre, it would totally be Veronica okay. Mars. Okay. No. So it's Dennis the Menace. Uh, uh, yes. Yes. Dennis the Menace. No. Okay. The no, the nineteen fifties version, black and white. It is, it is no? so not. Okay. No. Okay. Um Home Alone. Uh, Home Alone with Macaulay no. Culkin. No. Okay. no. Okay. No. Um, that'd be more like if, if I wanted people to, to look at mutations of Rambo. Um, okay. Yeah. But, oh, my God. Uh, that's a topic. <laughs> Rambo <laughs> is Home Alone. Yeah. Well, you know. Oh, my God. <laughs> I just wanted a toothbrush. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Ooh. You know, and, and the funny thing is, I just I pulled that like literally out of the back of my brain. But yeah. there you go. Oh wow. Um, okay, so, requiem for a dream. So, because Holmes is just trying to make ends meet. Oh God, no! Nope. Nobody ever fucking watched that thing. Jesus Christ, no! <laughs> for not for any <laughs> reason. Good God. Did I? No. <laughs> did I ever tell you I found two Amazon trucks and they were just offloading back to back? And I stopped. And I took a picture. And one of them looks out. He's like, what? What's going on? I was like, oh, the joke that this is for is way too complex and dark, but trust me, I'm not reporting you. I'm just making a really awful joke about a really well-made, horrible movie because um, the, the trucks were butt to butt. Nice. And so, nice. yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So, <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, it's really, it's really tough Mm-hmm. To actually answer your your question, because there there have been so many there have been so many really good interpretations of of Holmes as a character. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what I would recommend would be to find the Jeremy Brett Sherlock Holmes shows that were done by Granada Films. I want to say it was in the nineteen eighties. Okay. Um, Brett is an amazing Holmes. He, he manages to do a, a wonder, like the, the character of Holmes as written by Conan Doyle, I think is, is best okay. captured by Brett's performance because he manages to be outwardly 
utterly a cold fish. Mm-hmm. Like his 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 he's utterly utterly placid and very dispassionate. But then Jeremy Brett was this amazing actor. He's one of those actors like Toshirmi Fune, who we keep coming back to, mm-hmm. who could emote so effectively with his eyes. Ah, okay. That you could you could capture so wonderfully mm-hmm. his his the rest of his face would be totally placid and but you could see his eyes twinkling when he was getting one over on Watson. Sure, sure. Or you could or you could see how thoroughly enraged he was mm-hmm. at the the doings of a villain or whatever. And it was just it was I mean it was oh it's it's an amazing performance. So the so the Jeremy Brett uh Granada Holmes stories I think is where I would recommend you start. Okay. And then for sheer balls to the wall, fun to watch, uh, and and for the portrayal of the friendship between Holmes and Watson, mm-hmm. I would say Great uh, Mouse Detective. Yeah, I agree. That's a good one. That's yeah. actually a really good one. Not gonna lie. But uh might have uh, been my little brother's first movie. Oh yeah. He was not even two. Nice. Yeah. But the the Sherlock Holmes movie with Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law. Oh, okay. Is is like created whole cloth. It's not one of the original it's it's not based on any of Conan Doyle's stories. Right. And it, it veers kind of into steampunk in terms of the of the technology involved. So it's um, kind of kind of a fantasy movie. Mm-hmm. But but the portrayal of Holmes and Watson is pitch perfect. Okay. And, and and Jude Law's Watson, I think, is one of the best. I mean, they're all good, but his Watson is amazing. Okay. So cool. And it's just a hell of a lot of fun. Nice. All right. Well, there we go. Uh, where can people find you on the social medias? I can be found at uh, E.H. Blaylock on Twitter. I can be found at Mr. Blaylock on uh, TikTok and as E.H. Blaylock on uh, Instagram. We, collectively, uh, the podcast itself can be found on Twitter, Spotify, and the uh, Apple podcast app. Mm-hmm. Please Take a moment, uh, subscribe, give us a review, give us the five stars you know we have earned, and um, collectively, of course, on Twitter we can be found at Geek History Time, and uh, on the interwebs we can be found at geekhistoryoftime.com. Mm-hmm. And where can you be found, sir? Uh, you can find me, uh, January 14th, February 4th, March 4th, and April 7th, um, performing live, uh, at Luna's in Sacramento, California. Uh, you have to be vaccinated, um, and pay the cover. Uh, but you can find me performing live with Capital Punishment. You can also find me, uh, the first Tuesday of every month on twitch.tv forward slash Capital Puns, doing our digital show still keeping up with the international and uh, certainly a nationwide flair that we've come to enjoy over the pandemic. You can also find me on uh, Twitter and Instra at uh, Duh Harmony, um, two H's in the middle. So that's that's more than enough. So uh, yeah, um, for A Geek History of Time, I'm Damien Harmony. And I'm Ed Blaylock. And until next time, keep rolling 20s.